Hello, everybody. This is the first ever episode of the conversation. Uh, I'd like to thank you for joining me. Uh, I'm just uh, out for the daily stroll uh, in beautiful, very rainy Glace Bay, Nova Scotia. Um, it was literally so sunny and warm that it took my breath away when I first opened the door. I turned around. I went to take off my jacket because I was like, oh, well, I guess it's not going to rain. And then I came back to the door and literally it was probably maybe a minute and it was overcast again uh, with no sign of the sun to be seen. Yeah, so I really, this is a new format to me. And like I say, is anybody who's paid any attention to anything that i posted on Facebook, etc. I always say is that the big difference between that format and this one is that I can curate what I'm what I'm typing. And I don't do that often. Usually, like I say, is what I, what I type just flows from my fingers. But every once in a while, I read something that doesn't quite make sense. Maybe I wanted to elaborate on a point. Maybe I, oh, well, you know, maybe I had a second thought about something I typed out. And I can remove it. But the podcaster really can't do that. I could feasibly go through a half hour hour of material go back and listen to it discover I really hate everything that I wrote and now I've lost a half hour an hour of my life so really I thought the only way to be able to to do this is just kind of dive in head first learn from my mistakes and then improve in the next one I really wasn't sure what I was going to talk about because, you know, like I say, I didn't give a lot of... I, I gave some thought into the fact that I wanted to do this. And I gave thought to things I wanted to talk about. But when I started to think about it even more, I was like, these are topics of conversation where it would probably be good to have a backboard bouncing off of. So, you know, I'd need a guest. Right now, I don't have a guest. Right now, I mean, just seeing if this even records. Because honestly, I don't know if it will. But me and my buddy Richard were walking the other day and, uh, you know, we had some interesting topics of conversation. But one of the ones that, probably a little more on the lighthearted side, was donuts. I know what you're thinking. Not really, but I thought donuts was kind of a fascinating place to start. You know, we could have gone into politics, we could have gone into Trump, could have gone into racism, you know, could have gone into Black Lives Matter, could have gone to COVID-19. But I decided to start with donuts. So, I asked myself, because I was curious, I'm like, what are my top three donuts? And uh, my buddy Rich was with me at the time, so he had some input to share on this. I think because I talked too much, he only was able to provide me with one. But my third choice was Boston cream. And now Boston cream is a pretty iconic donut. And it's one of them donuts that I can remember having when I was a child. I have a feeling the wind is really gonna fuck up this podcast, but we'll see what happens. And I'm not exactly sure how to overcome that too, because the primary time where I'd be able to do these podcasts is when I'm walking. <coughs> so the one thing that my audience would have to put up with above all else is wind and me running out of breath. I'm not really sure an audience has the, the patience or tolerance to be able to pay attention to any one of those things for very long. 
Regardless, I digress. So yes, back to Boston Cream Donuts. So like I say, this is an iconic donut from my childhood. It's like one of the first donuts I can remember eating. And uh, the first time biting into that donut, feeling that delicious Boston Cream filling. It's one of those memories that I'm just never really gonna forget. Definitely an iconic donut. Second donut, Honey Crawler. Honey Crawler is an amazing donut. Texturally, it's like clouds evaporating in your mouth. It's got that delicious honey glaze on there. It's so good. And then finally, I have the donut above all donuts. It's not available anymore. Some people remember it, other people, for other people, it's just gonna be a myth. And that's the Walnut Crunch. This was just a solid bar of lard, really, is that that's, it was chocolate, thick, so much that it probably, if you took a fraction of a neutron star and you put it in your hand, it's probably the equivalent to the density of a Walnut Crunch. Obviously, as it's named entails, it had walnuts throughout. And uh, it was probably roughly the uh, length of your palm, of your hand. So good. And I don't know why they stopped making them. Perhaps there was too many health-related issues because there was no way that thing was even remotely healthy for you compared to other donuts. <clears throat> but... That still remains my, my favorite donut. Now, Richard argued that it couldn't be my favorite donut because it's not made anymore. And I'm like, that's ridiculous. That's like saying I can't have a favorite movie from the 70s because it wasn't made today. <laughs> now, Richard's favorite donut, he commented on two, which would have been honorable mentions for me. First was candy dipped. Now, Richard was very specific about candy dipped donuts. You couldn't just have any candy dipped donut you had to have one that was dipped evenly all the way around because that's what happens if you're a neurotic psychopath is that you have to have your candy dip even across all surfaces of the donut. Just realize that people look at you really weird when you're talking to yourself, especially if you're talking about donuts. In a second, also on my honorable on my honorable mentions list the apple fritter now we came to a revelation with the apple fritter one i called richard an old man but that was for the candy dip donut really because that seemed like such an old man choice and uh the with the apple fritter i i segued into how long do you think you should put a donut in the microwave for and Richard came back and said, I have no earthly idea. I don't really know anybody who probably thinks about that. At least that's what I imagined him saying anyway. <laughs> so it turns out that the ideal cooking time for any donut, well, I shouldn't say any donut, let's say any glazed donut, is eight seconds in the microwave on high. And I guarantee you, you'll never take a look at the donut the same way again. Now he further embellished on this by saying, oh wait, actually, no, it was me that actually said this. I was like, oh man, I'm like, what if you added a scoop of vanilla ice cream to that now eight second cooked apple fritter donut? And then we both realized that we were onto something. 
And I think it was around that time where I was like, this probably would have been a good subject for a podcast. Then we went on to heavier things. Went on to talk about racism, all that jazz, which I'm sure people are pretty tired of hearing about anyway, because it's all over the news. But I wanted to talk about something that was actually important to me. I was listening to a podcast, two of my favorite podcasters actually, and I'm not going to mention them because there's no need to smear people. Um, But during the course of that conversation, um, he's citing movies. They're going through their top 10 favorite movies, which by the way, is probably going to be one of my next ones, next podcast that I do is going to be my top 10 favorite movies for anybody who cares. (laughs) In fact, maybe that's what I'll title the the episode. Top 10 favorite movies for anybody who cares. (laughs) And um, anyway, they were going through their top 10. And they got to Quentin Tarantino. Now, Quentin Tarantino is one of my favorite directors. Um, And their number one movie was Pulp Fiction, which, given the historical, or not the historical, but the cultural significance of Pulp Fiction, I could completely understand. That being said, they apologized. They apologized for liking Pulp Fiction because it glorifies violence and it brought humor to violence. And they said they understood that that was problematic. And I was like, why are you apologizing for a movie that was made in 1990? What is that, 1994, probably? I think it's around 1994. I don't apologize for any of the movies that I liked. I don't apologize because they're violent. I don't apologize because they had depictions of violence. I don't apologize because they, you know, they uh, weren't afraid to um, put out their racial stereotypes or, you know, anything like that. Because the way I look at it is what you're looking at is a piece of art. You're looking at the artist's representation of either, maybe it's a fictional work, maybe it's a historical work, but ultimately it comes down to that you, you can't properly realize your vision, especially if you're looking at something historical, without accurately portraying it. And really, if you don't want to see that movie because there's something in it there that offends you or you feel triggered, don't go see the movie. Don't pay the money to go see the movie. That's how you can express your outrage. Don't express your outrage by trying to make it so other people can't see the movie. You know, not everybody's you. Not everybody is a snowflake. I know that that term is also considered harmful, but it's accurate. Is that there are people nowadays who melt under the slightest criticism, who melt under the slightest insult thrown their way. And uh, it's not right. It's not right. Because like I say, is that if I have a story that I want to write and that story, say, is based off of my childhood and the socioeconomic situation of where I grew up was such that, say, I wasn't exposed to a lot of black people, right? It's a story about my upbringing. It has an all-white cast. There's no reason that I should be attacked for that, judged, because that's my vision. That is a, that is my art. 
And for somebody to try to take that away from me, just because they don't agree with it, or if I want to tell a story, cyberpunk say, but I'm basing a cyberpunk story from a real time in history, like say during the reign of Hitler, and I want to have swastikas, and I want to have Hitler himself, and I want to have the kill you Jews, then I should be allowed to do that. Regardless of your predisposition to being insulted or being offended, I didn't create that with the intention of insulting or offending anybody. I created that because I wanted my work to have an air of historical accuracy, which I couldn't do for that time period without including those things. There could be an argument that said that, you know, what if I glorified it, you know, what if I wanted to switch the game? Make Hitler look like the good guy. You know, well, I should be able to do that. That's an interesting take. That is a movie that I would go to see. How many movies have you seen? Based around, you know, based around Nazis and Hitler and all that, where he plays the bad guy, obviously. Tons of them, majority of them. But if you were to make a movie in a bizarro world where, you know, Hitler actually is the hero and maybe he, he what you call, maybe he liberates Jews from the evil Americans, you, you wouldn't be able to make that. <laughs> you would not be able to make that. And that's problematic. Because really, art in most of its forms, music, you know, movies, television, although television is severely, you know, severely restricted nowadays on what you can and can't put on television. Movies are becoming that way as well. Is that I was pissed off when movies started to force inclusion into their narrative. Because in some spots, it just, it doesn't seem natural is that if your movie is about inclusion or naturally includes inclusion, you know, racial diversity, that's, that's fine. That's not problematic. But when you go into a movie and try to put one of every, each ethnicity into a group of people where it doesn't seem natural, I don't know. It just came off kind of weird. And I'll cite the example of Spider-Man uh, Homecoming. Uh, as being a movie where, even though I had no problems with the movie in general, I had no problems with the cast and, and whatnot, I thought that was all great, is that the racial diversity in that movie, it felt awkward. It didn't feel like that would be in a normal space, I guess I could say. It felt forced. And like I say, that could be just me. I mean, this is my opinion after all. Still a great movie. But I mean, ultimately, it should be up to the artist. And you, you know, the person who goes to see the movie, who pays for the movie tickets, if you're displeased with what you're seeing, that's what you answer with. But somebody took a great amount of time and a great amount of effort to develop that movie, to get somebody to purchase it, to produce it, 
to do the advertising for it, to put it out there, just for people to shit all over it before they even see it. Maybe because they don't even just like the concept of it, or they disagree with an actor or an actress that's been casted in it. Which brings me to my next point, actors. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the media lately, but there's a whole lot of people that are getting in shit right now. And they're getting in shit because they're not, same, they're not the same race as the actor that's trying to portray. This has happened with Shia LaBeouf. You know, this has happened with the actor from uh, The Simpsons. Um, I forget his name. You know the guy I'm talking about, though. And, uh, you know, and they're apologizing. People are bending the knee. They're succumbing to this. It's ridiculous. That shouldn't be a thing that's occurring. Literally, it's in the title. Actor. To act. To portray a character. To portray a character. So, as an actor, if you're set up to portray a character, why is it unacceptable to portray a character that's of a different ethnicity? Sorry. Now, again, an argument could be made that, you know, if you're making fun of the ethnicity, then that could be problematic, and I agree. But for the most part, you know, these characters are pretty benign. They're a voice on the screen. They're a portrayal of a particular archetype or stereotype, right? And the actor's doing a beautiful job of doing it. Right? Which kind of flows into my next point about the need for diversity inside of characters where historically there is no diversity. Like, for instance, you know, the need to make an established white character black or an established black character white. Can you imagine the outrage if somebody wanted to make the Black Panther a white man? Given how many few, and there are, there are relatively few black superheroes compared to the primarily dominant, you know, white superheroes. But I think that's more a lack of interest in comics and in, you know, superheroes in general. And I could be wrong. I don't know the numbers there. This is just my opinion, like I say. You know, lack of the numbers in general, which make it so there's more predominantly white superheroes. So my argument, and the argument of lots of people, rather than taking over an existing established character and changing their identity, is to create new and interesting properties, new and interesting characters that people can follow in love with. And there are some great historically, you know, black superheroes. Um, Shadowhawk and uh, Spawn and uh, you know Falcon when he turns to Captain America that's fine got no problem with that because he's not replacing Cap well I mean he is replacing Cap but you know what I mean he's not he's not replacing Cap and Cannon he inherited you know the mantle of Captain America from Captain America and for me that makes sense but what does wouldn't make sense would be suddenly taking canonical Superman and then turning him into a black Superman and then 
people getting angry at you because you're like, I don't understand. And I'll give you an even better example of this. Only this time, it's not going to be race, it's going to be gender. Ghostbusters. Okay. So, there was a lot of hysteria when Ghostbusters was coming out because of the all-female cast. And a lot of people took flack for it because they rallied against it. This isn't my Ghostbusters, you know. And it's true. For a lot of us that grew up with the real Ghostbusters, you know, as a child, and watched the original Ghostbusters movies, those characters will and forever be the Ghostbusters. Now, to top it off, not only was the... Uh, did they switch the gender of every single one of the Ghostbusters, so now we have an all-female team, but the movie was actually garbage. It suffered from terrible writing and pretty poor acting. Um, and it was 100%... And then, like an SJW cryo, really. Because instead of Janine, you had Chris Hemsworth being, you know, basically Janine. So they flipped all the roles. And it doesn't come off natural at all. But at the same time, you answer that by not going and watching the movie. You don't need to sit there and decry somebody's art form. You don't need to sit there and decry their effort, right? Is that when I was asked my opinion, I shared it, but I wasn't like out there lobbying against the movie and saying this fucking movie shouldn't be made and, you know, things of that nature. I was literally going to just express my, I wouldn't even say disgust, I would say disinterest. I would express my disinterest simply by not going to see the movie, and I never did. I still haven't seen the movie to this day. Um, no, lots of people have seen it though. And universally, the opinion seems to be that it's terrible. Um, but that being said, there is always a possibility I could watch it and enjoy it because I enjoy lots of terrible movies. This idea that, you know, your favorite movies need to be on some top 10 list somewhere, you know, rated by critics is absolutely ridiculous. I like lots of movies that I guarantee people hate. Mortal Kombat, a lot of people probably haven't even heard of the movie. <laughs> But, you know, that's from my childhood. It's important to me. You know, lots of terrible movies <laughs> that I've seen in the past that I'm sure other people hate. But uh, like I say, I'll save that for another time. But the idea is, again, is that answer with your pocketbook. Don't, don't try to take someone's art form away from them. Don't try to get it banned. Don't try to get it pulled. If it's as bad as you think it is, then people aren't going to go and see it. And they're not going to make any money off of it. And then hopefully they learn a lesson. It's true of so many things in life, right? But you see movies getting attacked now. It's only a matter of time before everything gets restricted and gets monitored right to the point where it's not even fun to do things anymore you have no way of reaching out there's no way to stretch your imagination because when you stretch your imagination you're bound to offend somebody i don't know if you've heard but people have been saying that orcs like are portrayed in lord of the rings are uh, racist 
their depiction of black people and slavery and uh, are stereotypical for people, are a stereotypical example of people of color. Now, I've talked to a few people of people of color, a few people of color, sorry, about this. Not a single one of them have ever associated an orc with being a racist character. The idea that you're transposing something from fantasy, something from fiction, and bringing it into the real world is ridiculous. And it takes away from the mystery and the majesty of cinema. It's like one of the whole reasons I go to the movies is to get away from reality. That's why I don't go and see like dramas and stuff like that because like people with cancer and I don't want to see that shit. I know people with cancer, you know? More majority of the times, these are heartwarming stories where the, where the person with the cancer dies at the end. Well, we already know that happens, so I don't really need to see that. I'll pay $13 to go and see it. I'd much rather go and see something that's out of this world. That isn't possible. And that I can't just see, you know, by knowing the right people. That's why I like superhero movies so much. It's because they take you out of that reality. And they do it very well. And they're type of movies that you don't even really need to know the subject material in order to be able to understand them, although it does make it easier. <laughs> this is the superhero genre of movies really kind of set the, the cinema game on its ear. There, there really hasn't been anything quite like it. You could say probably the closest comparison would be zombie genre because uh, that's a genre that stuck around for quite a while and uh, on odd years seems to have a slew of releases. People love zombie films. People love superhero films. It doesn't look like that bubble's going to burst anytime soon either. Um, but, you know, that's, that's the point of all that, is that those superhero films take you out of that world, take you out of this world, sorry, and kind of put you in that one, even for the span of like two or three hours. It's a magical experience that you can share with your kids. And you get people that'll sit there, comic book nerds, movie aficionados, people who are into, you know, soundtracks and cinematography and direction. We'll just sit there and, you know, tear a movie apart. And they forget what the fundamental principle of going to a movie is for. Distraction. Entertainment. Right? When you sit there and you psychoanalyze anything, especially if it has, you know, that magical property to it, you're essentially taking something away from it. Which I try not to do with movies as much as possible. Like I say, when I do a movie review, I like giving a basic synopsis of what the movie is. I like throwing something in there for those people that are into, you know, sound mixing or into cinematography, into direction, voice casting, or, uh, you know, character casting, etc. Um, if I find there's any major faux pas, I'll absolutely mention it. You know, they take a beloved character and make some sort of drastic change to them. That can always be jarring. My example of that, Transformers, Michael Bay. Most people know Michael Bay is directing. It always involves massive explosions. Um, 
and pissing off people. That's the two things that Michael Bay does very well. So when the Transformer series came out, I completely fanboyed out. Um, I can remember being teary-eyed in the uh, in the theater, uh, hearing Optimus Prime's voice for the first time, and realizing that it was Peter Cullen that was behind it. It was not really something that I thought I was going to see before I, uh, you know, in my lifetime anyway. But I never understood those movies for the simple fact that a lot of the original cast could have come back. A lot of the original cast could have been casted as the characters they were. A lot of the Transformers that were included in the movies could have used the same characters, you know, that us G1 fanboys were into. And I never understood why they didn't, because his, his, uh, he has a famous line, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably butcher this, but I'll paraphrase it, where he says, I don't make movies for fans. I make movies for 13-year-old boys. Which I suppose is fair. Remember what I said? It's like, you know, I disagree with it, but guess what? He still got my he still got the money. He got my money for every one of them Transformers movies. <laughs> they were absolutely something that I wanted to see, that I sat down with my daughter and watched with her. And when Callan gets old enough, I'll sit down and I'll watch with him. Um are they good movies? They're entertaining movies. And I feel like anything that can incite some sort of emotional response in you probably has value right? That's kind of the way I look at it. So if you're watching a movie, regardless of critics or what critics say about that movie, and it incites an emotional response in you, then that's success. That was what the Transformers movies did. Hearing Peter Cullen's voice took me back to my childhood. Seeing the Transformers, big, huge, on screen, have to thank Michael Bay for that. Right? I have to. There's no way you can't. But... I don't understand why he didn't just use G1 characters. And for those who don't know, G1's Generation 1. The very first run of Transformers. <laughs> There's no reason to use different names. Because even if it's 13-year-old boys that he says that he's making the movies for, the audience he's making the movies for, they wouldn't care one way or the other. Right? And I mean, he did have some iconic names in there. But he had a lot of trash Transformers that no one cared about. No one cared about. There was no character investment there because the fans that you were touching, right? The fans that you were touching were disconnected, I guess you could say. And the ones, the 13-year-old boys, they're not disconnected because they don't care. You know, maybe they do. Maybe that's a generalization. For the most part, they don't care. And uh, getting through all their movies, and that's you know that's another franchise. It's probably going to be remade again. And it's probably going to be remade without Michael Bay. And I'm kind of curious if that director, whoever he is, will kind of listen to the fans and make the Transformers movie. You know that the fans are looking for. And. Um, the last Transformers movie I seen was Bumblebee, which was probably the best of all of them, in my honest opinion. You know, fanboying aside. Peter Cullen's voice is Optimus Prime aside. <laughs> is that that's probably my favorite Transformers movie. If you haven't seen Bumblebee, it's pretty damn good. But uh that is a movie series that really 
people reviled it. They really did. But it made bank. Because there's no other property where you could go and see giant robots. At the time. Which, if we continue on with the whole movie thing, rebates. It seems that Hollywood now, outside of just, you know, superhero movies, is also capitalizing on, you know, people's want to see their beloved movies remade. And I'm going to tell you firsthand, I'm not one of them. I'd rather you just leave my movies alone. Certain movies like Indiana Jones, you know, um, Ghostbusters, unless you're making it with the original cast. Which apparently is happening, by the way. Who knows when, especially with this whole COVID thing going on, but apparently that's a, that's a thing that's at least in the wind. Um, you know, they remade, they remade Judge Dredd as Dredd. They remade um, Blade Runner. remade uh, Total Recall and for the most part they're not good they certainly don't hold up to the originals now do they have better production value you know absolutely I would say they probably have better production value um, what's his name oh god I want to say it's not Keith Urban I'm pretty sure that's a country singer his last name starts with Urban anyway he plays Dredd and he plays Dredd to the letter. If you've ever uh, read a Judge Dredd comic book, Judge Dredd has this grimace on his face like all the time. And uh, Urban nails that grimace to a T. Um, and the movie's super violent. Uh, if you've ever seen a martial arts movie called The Raid, uh, that is along the same lines as the storyline, the same premise. It's Judge Dredd trying to get to the top of the giant tower, take out the main bad guy. Pretty much the exact same premise. Entirely possible that the raid got the premise from them. Not sure. But capitalizing on remaking something that was already perfect is ridiculous. And my best example that I could give of that would be Back to the Future. Now, the people who own the Back to the Future property have literally signed an agreement that states that while they're alive there'll be you know remakes of Bat to the Future I think that's the way it should be because you're never going to capture that magic game that's, that's essentially lightning in a bottle um, Bat to the Future is about as perfect a movie as you can get uh, and I would challenge somebody to argue that it had adventure it had adventure characters it had an excellent soundtrack. You know, the, the visuals for the time were outstanding. The story was extremely engaging. It never really lagged. It carried you from one moment to the next. And even the sequels were enjoyable to watch. But you'll never capture the magic of the first. That's the future, in my opinion. You know, you can capture the magic, say something in something as spectacular as the first Harry Potter. You know, Harry Potter is one of the movies that when it was made 
and it was made recently compared to say something like Transformers. I don't know if that got recorded or not, but, but you know, recently as compared to say something like Transformers. And Harry Potter, everybody's fanboy knows that it wasn't true. And for the most part, I think the fans were pretty pleased with the representation that they were given. I mean, I've watched them all. I've watched them all several times. You know, they have a special place in my heart too. So I think, like maybe 20, 30 years, years down the road, would I want them to remake Harry Potter? Would I want them to remake Lord of the Rings? No. These are movies that really should only be made once. And you don't really need to improve upon them. Then you have movies like Twilight, which I know very little about, to be honest. I've seen all the movies, but I know very little about the series, um, especially the books. But apparently Kristen Stewart's character is played way too flat. Uh, and critics of the movies, fans of the movies, say that the movies are pretty abysmal because of her performance, because of Robin Pattinson's support, Robert Pattinson's performance. You know, that's the advantage of being able to see a movie without ever reading books, is you don't form biased opinion. So you can still enjoy the movie. But if you read the books, you're expecting things. You already have in your head an image of what these characters should look like. Even if that image is completely contrary to what the author originally wrote. <laughs> so, I feel like people who don't read books prior to going and seeing a movie kind of have an advantage, really. And uh, so with that being said, I was able to enjoy the Twilight movies for as much as I could. They were primarily those movies that, you know, you agree to go on the date to see. It wasn't something that I went out of my way to the theaters to be able to see. But I seen them all. And they were, you know, they were all right. The last one was probably my favorite. I think it's probably because it's the one that had the most violence. <laughs> I tend to have a violence violent heart when it comes to movies, but I'm probably one of the most passive people you'll ever meet. And, uh, you know, is that a movie that should have been remade? Not according to me. I care less than ever made, to be honest. But you know, there are other people out there that absolutely think it could be remade with a different actress to portray Belle, different actor, you know, to portray Edward. Um, you know, there are lots of movies, none that are coming to the top of my head other than Twilight though, where a lot of people think things could have been differently, diff done differently, and if they could remake the movie, they would do this. But I wish they, I wish that those people who mentioned those things had an ounce of an idea of what it takes to make a movie, of the effort that goes into writing a script, or writing a, you know, a relatable story. You know, something that you can build up and sell just have somebody come in who doesn't know shit all about it and come in and shit all over it. But I guess that's, I guess that's kind of the, the role that you take on, you know, is that you, now you've opened yourself up to critics. I guess you got to kind of accept that. But if it's, you know, if I was going to give any message, it would be, you know, is to just be, be mindful, is to be more understanding of, you know, what these people went through to be able to create that art before you shit all over them.
seems like pretty sane advice, I think. Honestly, I could probably talk forever about movies. I'm still a little ways from home, so now I'm kind of having a hard time coming up with a topic. This would be like one of those things where I would love to have an active listener and be just like, don't talk about this. Oh, that's going to cross the road. I guess a good segue would be talking about one of my favorite movie genres of all time, which is martial arts films. Me and I'm an introvert. I find it very difficult to generally go out, socialize, things of that nature. I suffer from depression, so I find it difficult to deal with certain situations. Sometimes I don't always feel like doing things. And uh, I had to find something that I could consistently do with my daughter so we maintained our connection. And that was, uh, we found that connection. We found that connection for movies. And it started out with some of my favorite franchises. You know, Star Wars, Transformers, um, you know, uh, Die Hard. You know, movies that are like that type. And then as we went on, it kind of evolved. And I showed her Legend of Drunken Master with Jackie Chan. And uh, Emily was hooked at that point. Uh, she wanted to just watch all kinds of martial arts movies at that point. And when you go back, um, God, my brain's drawing blank right now. But there is a, uh, there's a pair of brothers who uh, make have made dozens, maybe even hundreds, of really campy, like, 1970s martial arts movies. 36 Chambers of Shaolin, you know, the man with the white hair, <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> Snake versus Monkey, <laughs> they have all kinds of different names like that. I'm literally drawing a blank right now. <laughs> um, but, um, these, these campy movies, the first thing that she noted was like the first thing that I noted when I first started watching those martial arts movies is that the movements in old martial arts movies are super choppy. Like it's like each mo movement was planned out. And it's like, almost like watching somebody learning dance, watching these guys fight. And the answer was, or, or no, when I looked into it about why that was. The answer was, is because they felt that Westerners would lose the martial arts if they were moving fluidly, like if they were in full motion. Nowadays, people speed up so they make it look even faster. But back then, that was honestly what they thought. They thought that if they put this movie out to a Western audience, is that Westerners won't be able to keep up with the action, so we gotta slow it down. So it ends up being super choppy. And then, you know, as time comes up, goes on, only people who are really big aficionados who really remember a lot of the martial artists from back that back in that day. Um, but you obviously move on to the iconic Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee largely regarded as one of the, if not the greatest martial artists of all time. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people who throw a lot of shade at him, saying he wasn't as good as he said he was. And, 
And I'm like, I don't see the need to, you know, shit all over a legend's legacy. Is that obviously he was beloved by millions and millions and still is. Jeet Kune Do, his martial arts style that he developed, way of the intercepting fist, still thrives today, still has schools all over the world. Um, there's absolutely no discounting the legacy that that man left behind. Um, and I introduced Emily to Bruce Lee through Enter the Dragon, which is pretty much the way that I was introduced to Bruce Lee. <laughs> and she was amused at Bruce Lee for all the same reasons I was. That over-the-top scream, that Wah! that he does. He was, she was just completely enthralled by that scream. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I would introduce her to other martial artists as we went along. You know, she got introduced to um, Jean-Claude Van Damme. You know, uh, she hasn't seen anything with Chuck Norris in it yet. Um, but Jean-Claude Van Damme. Still hasn't seen anything with Steven Seagal. Um, and Seagal's a really interesting one, too. Because he's another person that has a lot of his detractors. There's a lot of people that think he's fake. And I think with Steven Seagal, what you got to kind of take a look at is at one time, he was legit. And uh, now, as the years have passed, and he's gotten, you know, he's gotten fat. He really has. He's gotten fat. And he's gotten lazy. He doesn't care as much. You know, he, he's in bed with Putin. He's like super friends with the Russians. Like that's not even a conspiracy theory. Look it up. He's super friends with the Russians. He doesn't have anything he needs to be good at anymore. He has his own movie production company that turns out like two, three stereotypical cookie cutter Seagal movies. And I'm, I'm not really too keen on, you know, Emily seeing that man as opposed to the man that was you know, and above the law, uh, or under siege. Um, those would be kind of the, like the the two iconic Seagal movies that I'm can you know I can think of. And when we moved on to Jacques Clive Van Damme, which again, you know, another really good martial artist. I was always amused at the fact that in his contracts, and I don't know, honestly, I didn't look this up on Snopes or anything like that, but so, you know, somebody can correct me if they want to, is that in his contracts for his movies, he used to have it, maybe he still has, I don't know, but he used to have it where he had to have his butt in scenes. And he had to be allowed to do his iconic butterfly kick, which if you look at older Jean-Claude Van Damme movies, that butterfly kick is in every single one of them. And he pretty much shows his butt in every single one of them. So, we watched the first Kickboxer. We watched Bloodsport. Uh, we watched Six Bullets. And if you haven't seen Six Bullets, that's one of uh, Van Damme's more recent movies. So good. So good. It's, you know, don't get me wrong, it's not like a, you know, an award-winning movie or anything like that, but no Van Damme movie is. But Six Bullets is genuinely a decent movie. Um, then Jet Li uh, she was introduced to Jet Li first through the Lethal Weapon series she loved the Lethal Weapon series like I love the Lethal Weapon series iconic in my opinion and she couldn't get over how fast he moved and I was like wow I said if you think that's fast we gotta go through some Jet Li titles 
So we touched on some Jet Li. We started watching other movies before we could really get into them. But I mean, she, she saw Kiss of the Dragon and she saw the one. And she was, how's it going? Afternoon. And she was super stoked about both. Both she thought was really good. Um, it was around that time that I got to explain to her about wire work because she started saying that a lot of these moves kind of look fake, especially in the one where you have basically the premise of the one is Jet Li is combating alternate dimension, or sorry, alternate reality versions of himself. And each one that he defeats, he becomes more powerful. It comes down to it, even though it doesn't make any sense given that there's infinite realities, <laughs> when it comes down to it, there's only him and one alter. I forget what his name is, you, and I forget the other guy's name. Um, Lee, I think it's you and Lee, actually. Anyway, so these two have to face off against one another. And because one of them has been jumping through alternate realities, you know, killing his doppelgangers, he's been getting stronger and stronger. But likewise, the other one has been getting stronger and stronger. And it's kind of like, at the end of it, it has a really good premise because it's kind of like a battle between good and evil. Um, one of the, the bad version of Jet Li in these movies fights in a straight line. All of his strikes are very direct, super powerful. The good version of Jet Li is circular and flowing, more like water. And they're extremely good contrasts of one another. And they do a very good job of uh, making it look like there are actually two Jet Li's fighting. It's an excellent movie if you haven't seen it. And then we moved on to, and I cannot remember his name for the life of me, um, is the lead martial artist in uh, The Raid. And I, he definitely has an odd name that I can never pronounce. <laughs> um, anyway, The Raid was something like she had never seen before because The Raid was ultra violent. It wasn't just martial arts violent. It, this took, the Raid took violence to a new level. <laughs> and Emily is like one of those people that if 14 years old, she understands the difference between reality and fiction, what's real and what's not. And what she appreciated was how this movie was able to broker that and make fake violence look extremely real. If you like violent content and you like martial arts movies, I definitely recommend Raid. It's an excellent film. Um... From there, uh, never really saw anything about Michael J. White, but I imagine that's something that I'm going to have to introduce her to, too, because he's an excellent martial artist as well. And uh, there's just so many movies in that genre, and the more that me and Emily go on, the more I realize that there's just so many movies for us to watch. I uh, We get lost in it. So last week, I decided... You know, I have this list of movies that I want us to watch in my head, obviously. But last week, I decided I was going to introduce her to the Miyazaki movies. And uh, there is no movie that I've ever watched with her where I've seen her nearly as delighted. I'd probably say the closest that would have came to would have been Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia. Emily is a fantasy child, 100%. She loves mythical creatures. More mythical creatures, more magic, the better. So the world of Mizaki 
Miyazaki story is filled with that. Absolutely visually striking. Absolutely wonderful storytelling. Absolutely amazing, amazing characters. So the very first one we watched was Princess Mononoke. And I watched this with my son too, which was kind of interesting. Hi. Hi, which was kind of interesting because he, uh, despite the fact that the movie had subtitles, uh, he was still interested. And it was probably about maybe 10, 15 minutes into the movie where I realized I could go to Netflix and switch it to English. And then he was really interested. <laughs> and uh, so we're sitting there and we're watching the movie. And that child of five years old sat through two hours and 15 minutes, I think. Might be a little longer. Two hours and 15 minutes of a movie. Like I've never seen him pay attention to a movie before. Emily enthralled from the beginning to the end. Her favorite part of Princess Mononoke, tree spirits. There's these little kind of amorphously shaped creatures that are that inhabit the woods. And they've got little heads that ring like rattles when they shake them. And she just absolutely thought they were like the greatest thing in the world. Wolves, you have wolves. She's a huge fan of wolves. So, I mean, this movie touched on a whole bunch of different levels. Not to mention that Miyazaki's storytelling is absolutely amazing. Um, the second one we watched after that was Spirited Away. And no, no, I lie. It was My Neighbor Totoro. And again, the glee that came from my daughter at watching Totoro was just, it was insane. It literally elated my heart to see her so happy watching a movie. Uh, mind you, she's been happy watching movies with me before, but watching her, watching her watch a Miyazaki film was just pure joy. <laughs> and uh, like I say, Miyazaki films always have the most endearing characters. So the main character in Spirit Away, the whole purpose of the movie is that she ends up getting trapped in the spirit world in the beginning. And then she has to find her way out at the end through a series of trials and through interacting with a series of very bizarre and interesting characters. Really, that's kind of the premise for... Well, no, no I guess it's really only the premise for this movie. But in Totoro, backtracking, sorry, in Totoro, it deals with a family that moves to the country and they move into a property which is largely, largely believed is haunted. And it ends up that the reality is, is that they're close to a sacred tree. And that sacred tree is home to a creature called Totoro, which is, near as I can tell, a giant cat bunny. Regardless though, it's a giant cat bunny that captured the hearts of millions and millions of people, including my daughters. And the final film that we watched was Nazca, Valley of the Wind. And uh, it was older. It was an older style. It was an older flavor. Um, the animation was very Miyazaki, but you could tell that, you could tell of its age anyway. And I was kind of curious, you know, if Emily would hold the same interest or whatnot. Because it was the last movie we were watching, it was getting late. And I kind of thought that maybe her interest was waning. 
Um, she started falling asleep around like the last hour of the movie, but that wasn't because of that wasn't because of the movie itself. She was just tired. It was really late, and she's been trying to go to bed earlier. And uh, once I pointed that out, though, she asked me to shut the time, and I said, "Oh, you got about an hour left or so." She stayed awake for that entire hour. She enjoyed the movie from start to finish. She was engaged. She was speaking to me about it. She had questions. Some I could answer, some I couldn't. <laughs> and uh, that's what's on tap for tonight. For tonight and tomorrow, we're going to watch some more Miyazaki movies. Uh, probably going to introduce her to Castle Cogliostro, um, Castle in the Sky, and Kiki's Delivery Service, which I'll probably watch with Callan as well. Um, if you guys haven't seen the Miyazaki series, I really recommend that you do so. It's on Netflix now, probably only for a limited time. Um, I know there's lots of people on my Facebook who are big Miyazaki fans. Uh, and with all the hatred and vile nonsense and garbage that's going on in the world today, Miyazaki films take you away from all that just for a few minutes anyway. And by a few minutes, I mean really, <laughs> realistically, like what, there's 22 films? Maybe about 50 hours or so? Solid? Just walked past the cutest group of ducks and a very protective mom. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, from, from a fan standpoint, it's like, you can see, you know, the whole point of this podcast coming right down to the end of it is how important movies are. In the beginning, it was about donuts. In the end, it's about the importance of cinema. And uh, the importance of cinema boils down to one thing, is that it takes you away. It takes you away from this world. This world is so ugly right now. It's good to think that you can retreat back to a time where the world wasn't so crazy. You can watch a movie where you, you know, people joked about stupid things, white chicks, black people wearing white face. You know, Tropic Thunder, one of the best performances of all time by Robert Downey Jr. He's just a dude playing a dude playing another dude. Right? Blackface, done right. Is it ever done right? Is there ever a case where it's not actually offensive? There was a time when no one thought it was. But it made people think it was offensive and just never said anything. I don't know. But I still like to retreat back to them times where things were made more sense. And that's why people should be allowed to make the movies they want to make. Because this world doesn't make any sense. Maybe they're making movies so they can make the world make sense. And if they want to do that, I support them all the way. And if I don't like the movie, I'll just answer that by not going to see it. I feel the same way about people's opinions. Which I'll get to in depth in another, in another episode if there happens to be one. Because I don't know how well, how well this one did. <laughs> But, uh, you know, it goes with people's opinions too. If you don't agree with it, don't listen to it. 